Good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn with me in the New Testament to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. This morning we'll be taking a slight detour from our regular verse-by-verse study through 1 Corinthians in order to center our attention on a topic that is important in the New Testament, a topic that our pastors feel is worth our focused study, and that is the topic of evangelism. Last year when we released our latest vision statement, which is an attempt to forecast where the church will aim particular efforts in the coming years, one of the areas that we wanted to emphasize was personal evangelism, which is, most simply, talking to people about our faith. Max Stiles, who is a pastor in the Middle East, wrote a wonderful little, very helpful book on the subject of evangelism. It's a nine marks book about this big, and it's red. And he defines evangelism this way, very succinctly. He says, it is teaching the gospel with an aim to persuade. That's what evangelism is, teaching the gospel with an aim to persuade, teaching or heralding or proclaiming or even preaching the gospel with the goal of an appeal, of a persuasion. That's what we're called to do, as we will see this morning. We may not all do it from a pulpit, but the New Testament expectation and example is that believers will have Jesus on their lips wherever they go. And that they will speak warmly warmly of Him wherever God's providence allows them. Jesus builds this evangelistic task into the founding DNA of the church, When he gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And then we see that same evangelistic fervor put into practice throughout the book of Acts. And so to help us towards the end of encouraging, of stirring up one another to good works, like sharing our faith, we thought it might be helpful for some regular attention to be paid to the subject of evangelism. Thus today we're starting what we'll call our Who's Your One emphasis. Who is your one You probably noticed the signs throughout the building or even the bookmark in your bulletin. This emphasis is not meant to be a burden upon you, nor is it meant to be one thing to add on top of your already busy schedule. Rather, the heart behind this emphasis is for each of us to have a regular reminder, to have it regularly placed before our eyes, what it is to have the biblical privilege of being in Christ and joining with Him in declaring His good news to the world. And so we hope that you will prayerfully consider who the one person, or certainly more than one person, you can not have a limit there, but who is the one person that you have a relationship with, that you're willing to leverage in order to share your faith. You're committing to pray for them, that God would work in their hearts and open their eyes to see the truth found in His Word. Open your eyes to see the opportunities to love that person well both through your actions and through sharing with them the truth of the gospel. You can even take those bookmarks in your bulletin and write down the name of that person and keep it in your Bible so that you'll remember to regularly pray for them and pray for opportunities as you engage with them. That's the heart behind this emphasis, and that's that we would all encourage one another in the area of evangelism, of sharing our faith with an aim to persuade, not for our glory or For anyone else's, but for the glory of God and God alone. And today I will kick off this emphasis with a sermon 
from the first three chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. This will be, Lord willing, the first of a few occasional sermons throughout the rest of this year that will keep on our radar this evangelistic emphasis. And specifically this morning, as I was preparing this sermon, I couldn't get my mind away from what Paul has been saying in the first three chapters of this letter. Paul's context is specifically speaking about the nature of church ministry, but the principles that he gives have direct application for each of us in our personal efforts of evangelism. Thus, this morning, we'll survey the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians and see four principles drawn from Paul's arguments. And we'll see how they will impact our thinking as personal evangelists and as an evangelistic church that goes from here with the gospel on our lips. And those four principles can be remembered by four words. Catalyst, content, contentment, and community. Catalyst, content, contentment, and community. Let me start by asking the Lord in prayer and then we can move in. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your word that not only compels us to belief in Christ, but also commissions us to be ambassadors for Christ. Help us this morning to rightly see this gospel and to use it to launch us to be faithful evangelists, trusting in your faith, in your providence, and in your good works. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and we'll see the great catalyst for our evangelism, the catalyst for faithful evangelism. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, the very power of God. Paul is laying out a wonderful description of the gospel as the power of God himself. We, he had just finished explaining how man's words, man's desire for worldly eloquence can actually undercut the message itself. And in contrast to that, the whole beginning of this letter proclaims that the gospel, that the message of Christ crucified proclaimed with simplicity and with faith is indeed the very power of God. This is the heartbeat of any ministry and certainly any individual evangelistic effort. And that's why I chose the word catalyst. A catalyst is something that's used to jumpstart a reaction. It lowers the necessary energy to start a reaction. And, and if we apply that principle to our evangelism, it is the gospel, it is the power of God, the message of Christ crucified that is the fuel that starts the reaction. It drives an evangelist. It sustains the effort. Evangelism that is fueled by anything other than the gospel is flawed by the very beginning. Some people are driven to evangelize out of guilt rather than the gospel. And they soon find that they will run out of power. That their tank of evangelistic zeal will run dry. And that's because guilt and the law will never sustain faithful evangelism. But when I am fueled by the power of God, I will find that my tank will not run dry. I will be sustained in my evangelistic efforts over the long run. Indeed, I can be sustained in my evangelistic zeal even though I haven't seen much fruit. You remember the story of William Carey? He was fueled by the gospel. He was the father of modern missions. He traveled to Burma. 
And he later saw trial after heart-wrenching trial. He labored for years and years. In fact, he labored for seven years before he saw his first convert. Duty alone would never sustain a man in that kind of situation. Only gospel-catalyzed divine action, only the very power of God unto salvation can sustain such faithful evangelism. And that leads to a second principle we see in Paul, which explains how the gospel catalyzes our action. We've seen that the word of the cross is itself the catalyst of evangelism, but turn to chapter 2 now, and we'll see the content of faithful evangelism. The content of faithful evangelism. If the gospel is indeed a powerful message of God, then we need to know exactly what that message is. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. An evangelist is someone who has the role of sharing the evangel or the good news or the gospel. And if New Covenant believers are called to be evangelistic, called to be proclaimers of the evangel, then we better make sure we get the message right. We're called to be ambassadors. And an ambassador that gets the king's message wrong is a lousy ambassador. And now might be a good time for a little self-reflection here. If you had to explain the gospel to someone in 60 seconds or less, could you do it? What would you say? If you got on the elevator with someone and you had less than a minute to spend with that person, what might you say to them? And I say that not to shame anyone that might not have a message precisely nailed down, but to encourage each of us to examine ourselves and to examine Scripture to ensure that we know the message that we're called to proclaim. And what is that message? In short, the word of the cross is nothing other than the simple proclamation of the salvation of sinners by Christ's substitutionary death in their place. Paul summarizes it in several places in Scripture. For example, in chapter 15 of this book, he says, For I delivered to you that which was of first, made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. See, the gospel addresses a problem, which is sinful hearts. The cliche is true, but it's that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. But the message of the cross is not only diagnosing the problem, it also provides a treatment. Christ died to address the heart problem. Christ, the Son of God, died as a substitute. He bore our sins. He bore the punishment that we deserve. He died and was buried and was raised on the third day, securing our own life in Him and securing for us new hearts. See, we could go to dozens of other texts that explain the gospel very succinctly. You probably have memorized John 3.16. That's a famous one. But the point is this. If we're called to be people of the gospel and people for the gospel, then we better know what the gospel is. We better know the content of the message. Additionally, properly understanding the content of the message does two things for us. It produces confident assurance in the message. Knowing what the gospel is assures us with confidence about the content, despite what the world may think of it. 
The Corinthians were part of the Roman Empire at the time. They were under the influence of Greek and Roman ideals in society, ideals that prioritized power, glory, honor, much like America today, which prioritizes power, glory, success, honor. And today, this message of the cross offends those culturally prized ideals. People are prioritized today, the ones that overcome, that impress, that rise to the top, people that win friends and influence people, people that get things done. That's what our culture thinks is valuable. But the message of the cross, the simple proclamation of the word of Christ's death in the place of sinners doesn't garner you any of that. In fact, if you faithfully preach the word of the cross, you'll end up with the opposite of the cultural ideal. You'll actually be offensive. You'll divide. You'll separate. You'll send people away. But the content of the gospel provides us with confident assurance in Christ. Because we know that we have been given all things in Christ. And if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? If I have the smile of God in Christ, then who cares if the world frowns upon me? My aim and my goal is to honor God and to seek His affirmation, not the affirmation of hell-bound men. But not only does having a proper understanding of the message produce confidence in it, it also changes how we think about the message's delivery. Understanding the gospel changes how we think about delivering the gospel. This is a major theme of the first three chapters, but we can mention one illustration at this point. Paul uses particular language to, pro- to describe the work of proclamation. He says multiple times that his mission was to preach Christ crucified, not merely to teach Christ crucified. And the difference can be subtle, but I think it is significant. It's a difference that we can see something of in Acts 5.42, where Luke records that daily they were going house to house, and they didn't stop teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. See, teaching is instruction for the goal of understanding. It's certainly included in any good proclamation of the gospel, but the difference is that preaching includes an appeal. An appeal to believe. Teaching aims at the head, but preaching aims at the whole person. Preaching includes an appeal to the whole man, to his heart, to his desires, to his fears, to his emotions. Paul even uses that word appeal in chapter 1, verse 10. One reminder for us as evangelists, as those who properly understand the evangel, is that this message isn't merely an intellectual decision. We're not merely trying to win academic battles and apologetics or trying to crush opponents in theological debates. We're trying to faithfully present the message in all of its grandeur, which when faithfully done will engage the entire man, his head, his heart, his desires, his emotions. And that's important because we don't speak about Jesus merely to win arguments. We don't speak about Jesus to produce intellectual agreement in the minds of our listeners as if a misunderstanding is the sum of the problem. We preach Jesus to win brothers and sisters for the kingdom, which includes a a, a petition and an appeal to them that they would believe in this Christ whom we proclaim and the salvation that he has brought, which engages every part of their being. 
We must know the content of our message and we should strive to persuade any who would listen to come and to be reconciled to God through his powerful message of Christ crucified in our place. Third, we've seen the catalyst and the content of faithful evangelism. Now let's turn towards the evangelist, towards the person evangelizing, to the one who's sharing the message of truth. And when we see that, we'll see in our text that humble contentment should mark a faithful evangelist. Humble contentment marks a man or woman seeking to be faithful in the realm of evangelism. This was certainly true of Paul, and it should be true of us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, regarding his own view of his role, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul's contentment here was twofold. Paul had first contentment in the role that he played. He was content with his role. He had contentment being a co-laborer among others. He knew that today he was a planter and Apollos was a waterer, but tomorrow he may be the waterer and Apollos may be the planter. We're all on the same team. We're all preaching the same Savior. We're all pursuing the same spiritual goals. And perhaps most significantly of all, each of us is a mere tool in the hands of the Almighty who actually does the saving. He is the only one who has the ability to actually produce evangelistic fruit. That's what it says in the verse. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The laborers themselves are nothing when compared to the one who actually can bring about new growth. And when we understand that, when we have the humble contentment that Paul had in his role, it will lead us to prayerfulness. It will lead us to prayerfulness. Prayerfulness marks an earnest evangelist and an earnest evangelist because he knows that apart from any divine action, he himself can do nothing. Any evangelistic effort ought to begin well before we open our mouth, because it ought to begin on our knees before God. Praying for opportunities, praying for the words to say, praying for open ears to hear the truth, praying for growth. One old hymn writer wrote it this way. He said, Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I nobly do my part to win that soul for thee. You see, all I can do is prayerfully scatter seeds, prayerfully water. God himself is the one that can and must give the growth, and I must be content in that role. And when I'm content, it will lead me to be prayerful. But a humble evangelist is also content with the results. A humble evangelist is also content with the results. You see, if my success as an evangelist becomes the barometer of my spiritual value, then I will either become prideful when people come to faith, or I will despair because of the apparent lack of fruit. One or the other is inevitable. But when I remember my role, when I remember I'm just a worker, I'm just a farmer, I'm a planter, I'm a waterer, then I remember that any actual growth is in the hands of a sovereign God. Yes, I'm certainly called to plant. Yes, I'm certainly called to water. I'm, I'm called to pray. I'm called to teach and to aim to persuade. 
but I cannot and I should not try and force converts into the kingdom. In fact, I can't. Yes, I teach. Yes, I appeal and I pray, but I cannot force new birth any more than I can force a seed to sprout into a sapling. And this understanding, this contentment in the results, trusting God with the results, leads to my joyfulness amidst the work. You see, if I labor in evangelism for long periods and I don't see any immediate fruit right in front of me, I can be sustained in my work knowing that God is glorified in my efforts and He is the one that will handle the results. God sees me trying and He will reward accordingly. That's what verse 8 of chapter 3 says. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Each will be rewarded according to his labor, not according to the fruitfulness of the vine, not according to the number of converts, a number of baptisms, but he will be rewarded according to his labor, according to his faithfulness in executing the responsibilities given to him and within his control, namely, speaking of Christ to others and trusting God with the results. Humble contentment with our role as fellow workers in God's kingdom helps to keep us in a posture of prayerfulness. And helps sustain our joyful contentment with the results over the long term. Fourth and finally, we've seen the catalyst and the content of faithful evangelism. We've seen the contentment of the evangelist. Now let's look at the final C, which is community. A faithful evangelist keeps in mind a community of evangelists. Let me explain what I mean by that. A faithful evangelist keeps in mind a community of evangelists. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul describes the church using some theologically significant language that we discussed last week. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? And then again at the end of the next verse, God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul sees the new covenant church of God as temple stones, as building blocks in the place of God's dwelling. Other New Testament language is used of living stones as a nation, a new nation of priests serving in a spiritual temple. That's significant. Priests, by definition, are go-betweens. They're mediators. And we act in a priestly way. Certainly not salvific. Christ is the only one that can save you. But there is a priestly aspect to our evangelism. As living stones in the temple of God, we're sent out into the world as a nation of priests, sharing our faith and the message of the cross to a lost and dying world. We're offering a message of hope to those that have been separated from God, and they are in need of mediation, of priestly work, the work of Christ in their place. And when we come to faith in Jesus, we are baptized into a new role, a new spiritual vocation, where every area of my life becomes a priestly and holy work unto the Lord. Everything I do, everywhere I go, wherever I am, becomes an opportunity to honor the Lord in a priestly way. So it doesn't matter if you're a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker. God can and is glorified in your work if you are faithful to the task and you see every opportunity around you to be used for His glory. And one of the primary ways to glorify Him in your work is by speaking the truth in love. Especially the truth of the gospel. And when we speak warmly of Christ, we glorify our Father in heaven. 
And if the Holy Spirit blesses that attempt, we're able to see a new living stone added to the temple, added to this community of evangelists. You see, a faithful evangelist keeps his eye on the community. We're not merely here to produce professions of faith. We want to see disciples made. We want to see disciples who become a part, a faithful part of the new temple of God, the church. We want to see new living stones added that the temple might be built up. That new stones might be adopted by God. They may, that they may plug into a faithful church where they can be fed. Where they in time can exercise their own spiritual gifts. Where they can become vibrant members of a living community for God's glory. Seeking to pursue even more new stones for the temple. The evangelism is never about seeking converts to a tribe. Or to my team. We can be tempted to analyze the numbers and try and manufacture professions and baptisms, but a faithful evangelist is quick to connect genuine converts to a faithful community of believers. That's God's plan for the church, God's plan for converts and for evangelism. But it doesn't just stop there. The temple of living stones, which is the new covenant church of God, is to be the fertile ground for evangelistic efforts. It's the church that raises up and sends out missionaries. It's the church that's full of mothers and fathers, faithfully proclaiming the gospel with their children. It's the church that raises up future pastors and preachers and evangelists. And it's the church who's full of living stones who stir one another up to love and good works, one of which is evangelism. You see, we stir one another up when we tell stories of our sharing the gospel and of people responding and of lives changed. We stir one another up when we share our testimonies of how God saved us through the feeble attempt of someone else sharing the message with us. We stir one another up when we celebrate God's faithfulness in answering decades of prayers that have been prayed for someone's salvation. We stir one another up when we testify to God providing unexpected opportunities to share our faith in ways that we couldn't have imagined. We stir one another up when we see new converts baptized, just like we saw this morning. Because each baptism is a reminder that God is working, that God's gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and that God has worked new life into the hearts of these new believers. We have planted, we have watered, but God has given the growth. Hallelujah. And we stir one another up when we use the gospel To encourage a weary evangelist who is tired of laboring and laboring with very little evident fruit. Or we encourage, we stir up one another when we encourage a fearful evangelist who's afraid of what may happen if he speaks of Christ at work. You see, the church is the community of God designed by God, used by God to bring salvation of God's people to the glory of God. And these are some of the basic principles that we can draw from Paul in these first three chapters to encourage us this morning. At the outset of our emphasis on evangelism, I hope that you will prayerfully consider how these principles apply to you and who might be that one person, one person at work or in the neighborhood or at the ball field or in your family that you're committing to pray for, that you'll seek out opportunities to speak to them, to engage them with the gospel. And to bless them with the message that you have, which is the very power of God. And as you seek to do that, 
I want to close this morning with a very clear encouragement drawn explicitly from this power of God, from this message of God. And the message is simply this. Be encouraged that Christ died for sinners like me and you. He died for people like us who were afraid to speak the truth, who were afraid of not being liked, afraid of not being promoted, afraid of not being esteemed in the eyes of the world. We didn't hallow God's name rightly, and we kept it to ourselves. Christ died for every bit of that fear of man. And He willingly died in your place. If you are trusting in that Christ, you have been washed of any of that blame and any of that guilt. You've been forgiven of that fear. You've been cleansed of that timidity. You've been adopted into God's family. And you've been forever given a heavenly inheritance. You're forever gifted with the Holy Spirit Himself who guides you and seals you for the day of redemption. And therefore, if we have been given so great a salvation, if we've been given so great a privilege by so great a message, how could we not also share that message with others? They too have their minds darkened. And they're content where they are, being enemies of God, headed down the road of destruction. But we have the message of light. We have the message of truth, which in the hands of the Holy Spirit can grant them new life, new birth, and salvation to the darkest of of any soul. No family member is too far gone. No sinner is too wicked. And no rebel is irredeemable. No one is out of God's reach. And so let us lean into that hope, into the hope of the power of God seen in the redemption of sinners by the death of Jesus Christ. And let us with hearts full of love for Christ, for what He has done for us, pursue the enemies of Christ with the aim of winning them to Christ for Christ's glory. And if you are here this morning and all of what I've just said is nonsense to you, if you're completely unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, or perhaps if you have grown up in the church and you have heard all of this before, but you have yet to personally believe, then I appeal to you on the basis of God's holy word to hear this call that Christ has come to save sinners and you are a sinner. You have violated God's holy law and you are separated from Him and will remain eternally so in hell if you do not believe. Trust and believe in this Christ. And that very moment you can be saved. The only way for you to be saved from the guilt of your sins is to believe in this Christ and turn and trust in Him. He can save you. He delights to save sinners. Come to Him and have your soul washed. Have your conscience cleansed. Have your past forgiven and your future Secured. Come and believe. Here's scripture which calls you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the gift of new life, of new birth that you have given your people because of the work of Christ in our place. We pray that you would cleanse us, that you would encourage us, that you would lift us up and send us out, that we would no longer be fearful but that we would speak with boldness, with confident assurance in the message, in the gospel, which is your very power for the salvation of sinners. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close this morning by singing a hymn, hymn number 663.
O church, arise.